You know, I, I'm really not much of an innovator, the kind of guy who's always trying new things, but we are trying something new as we make our way through the book of Exodus and come to these three chapters, Exodus chapters 21, 22, and 23. I am not on Sunday morning going to be carefully teaching through each verse and each phrase, making our way through the chapters. Instead, what we've done is we've put that teaching, that careful verse-by-verse teaching, we've done it in our wonderful new video studio, and we did it uh, sitting around a table in something we're calling conversational exposition, where myself, Nate Wagner, and David Wally all sat around a table and worked through these passages section by section. We did it in, in clumps. You know, so it's each video is somewhere around 10 minutes, some a little shorter, some a little longer. And we take it section by section, this amazing uh, passage of Scripture where it details these laws that gave God gave to Israel. And, uh, you, you know, I, I wanted to do it that way. It was sort of a conversation around a table. I didn't want it to be like a hostage video with me just looking straight into the camera the whole time. <laughs> and so, look, here's the point. This morning, I'm doing a summary of chapters 21, 22, 23. You want the in-depth exposition? Go to our website. You'll see the video, you'll have access to it, and you can go through it step by step in much greater depth than I could even give to it here on Sunday morning. With that being said, Exodus chapter 21, verse 1 begins, Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. Now these are the judgments... Exodus chapters 21, 22, and 23 complain many laws on a broad variety of subjects. Here's just some of the subjects that they include. It tells us about employment law regarding the treatment of servants. It tells us about the distinctions between murder and manslaughter and violent assault. It speaks to us about the liability for one's animals and the responsibility for the animals of other people. These chapters speak to us about theft, about responsibility, about restitution. It speaks to us about rape, about dowry, and about the value of a woman's virginity. It speaks to us about personal injury and disability insurance. It speaks to us about idolatry and sorcery, about the treatment of disadvantaged people in society, about money and proper lending practices, and it teaches us about justice and equal standing before the law. And that's not even a conclusive list. But I just want to give you the idea that these three chapters, 21, 22, and 23 of, of Exodus, give us a broad view of many laws that God gave to ancient Israel. And in these laws, we see the character and the wisdom and the love of God on display. For example, in these laws, we see that human life is valued and protected. We see that responsibility on an individual level is required. We see that God commands kindness and compassion in daily living. We see that God is very concerned about justice and fairness. And if I could put it this way, about blind justice. Justice that doesn't care who's before it, but in a blind way, it's going to determine what's right and what's wrong. It speaks to us about how God has a heart to see the vulnerable and the weak protected, about how God wants debts to be repaid and how restitution for wrong is to be made. 
It shows us about how the rights of the accused are to be respected and how crimes are to be prevented more than anything. It shows us how God is to be honored and a community is to be blessed. Now, it's a marvelous, marvelous section. And that's why I really invite you to take some time out and take a look at this verse-by-verse, in-depth exposition we give to these things on the video segments on our website. But I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. That's not to say that we could simply take these laws and write them into our own law books today. It isn't so simple as that. Many of these laws presuppose a particular cultural and historic situation that was relevant for ancient Israel, but perhaps not today. I'll just give you one example. Here's one example. Um, Many of these laws presuppose the cultural practice of paying a dowry. Do you know what a dowry was? A dowry is what the groom had to pay to the bride's family before he had the right to marry her. It was a bride price, a dowry. Now, here in the Western world, although there are some places in the world today where the practice of the dowry continues, in the Western world it doesn't. And many of these laws just don't make sense without the practice of the dowry. I'll just give you another example. In these chapters, you'll see the verse where it says, you shall not boil a kid that is a baby goat. You shall not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Now you think, well, that blows my plans for the afternoon. (laughs) Well, again, no, 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 no. It's a very relevant law in principle. And when you see what the cultural environment was and what that law meant in principle, okay, it makes sense. But again, we live in a cultural and historic situation that in some ways is very removed. By the way, what's behind that? Shall not boil a goat in its... Go to the website. Look it up. We'll talk about it. Well, that's the way it is, okay? Now... No, but here's the point. Here's what you need to grab onto. The principles endure. We look behind these laws and we see principles about what they say, about who God is and how he works in our life. That's why he says right here in verse 1, these laws which you shall set before them. You see, God gave them these laws not only for Israel and themselves, but also that they would be the precedent the principles, the case law by which later things would get decided in Israel. Have you ever walked into a lawyer's office and you see all these books on their shelves? And what they are oftentimes are their law books, their case books, citing precedents and prior cases that help them to decide how the law is to be applied today. In many ways, this right here, these three chapters make up Israel's case law, their precedents. And by them, the judges of Israel would draw principles by which way they would discern what's just, what's right, what's wrong, what's God's will in a specific situation. So following from verse 1 are dozens of laws given as examples, as precedents, as principles by which they would decide things and order their society. So I find it interesting. And what we're going to do now is we're just going to take a look at a couple of these laws, just a couple. If you want the complete treatment, again, we worked hard and put many hours on videotape so that you could do that. But again, we're going to take a look at a couple of laws, and then we're going to take a look at the conclusion of this section in chapter 23. So for the couple of laws, look now first at the very next verse, Exodus chapter 21, verse 2. What's the very first law God has on his list? 
What's the first topic, the first subject that he deals with? God has compassion upon slaves in Israel. Take a look at this, verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. Now right there, that very first opening line, verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, there are some people who are immediately shocked and scandalized by that verse, and they say, God here invented slavery and instituted slavery in the ancient world. Did you know that there are some people who try to blame the Bible for slavery? As if Moses, or as if later biblical writers, invented slavery. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, that is an extremely, and I'm going to be as charitable as I can right now, I'm thinking of worse words in my mind, but that is an extremely misinformed position. Slavery existed for centuries before the Bible ever was written. Slavery is normal among human beings. It's always been in the predatory and cruel human nature of mankind to prey upon the weak and the vulnerable and to enslave them for their purposes. It's existed before the Bible. It exists as far outside of the Bible in cultures that the Bible has never touched. The Bible has nothing to do with the establishment of slavery, but the Bible has everything to do with the elimination of slavery. And by the way, I'll just mention it quickly. We talk about it a little bit more in the studio, but I will mention this. Slavery is alive and well in the world today, and it's tragic. And it's unbiblically, and it's a scourge upon humanity. But in any regard, please notice this. You see, slavery among the ancient Hebrews was very different than what most of us think of as slavery. When most of us think of slavery, slavery, our minds instantly sort of go back, and we think about the cruel institution of slavery as it was known in the United States, particularly in the 18th and the 19th centuries. And we let that sort of model in our minds where this is how slavery worked in those times. First of all, people were made slaves because they were kidnapped. They were stolen. And then they were transported into a different place. And then what happened next was that they were slaves for life and could never be free. And all their children, all their descendants were also slaves for life. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that doesn't reflect the institution of slavery in ancient Israel at all. Not a bit. Instead, when the Bible describes in verse 2 a Hebrew servant, these are the four basic ways that a Hebrew might become a servant in ancient Israel. Number one, in extreme poverty, somebody might voluntarily sell themselves in service to another person. I'm so poor that I have no prospects for myself. But if I sell myself to you, you'll provide for my needs, I'll work for you, and I'll just be sort of an indentured servant to you. That was one way that somebody might become a servant in ancient Israel. Number two, a father might sell a daughter as a servant into a home with the intention that she would later on marry into the family. And provision is made for that in Exodus chapter 21, verse 7. A very interesting law, which, by the way, is remarkable. I I hate 
to keep saying, look at the video. But look at the video, because as we speak about that particular law, you're going to see what a vital concern God has for the rights and the needs of someone like an 11-year-old girl. I mean, it's remarkable to see how God cares for those who might be otherwise voiceless or have no defense. The, the third way that a Hebrew might become a slave is in the case of bankruptcy. See, that's how it worked in the ancient world. Not just in Israel, but in the ancient world. They, they didn't have bankruptcy court like we have it today, where debts are discharged that way. If you had debts that you couldn't pay, you know, your creditor would hang with you for a while, but if it was established you couldn't pay the debts, you couldn't discharge them with bankruptcy. You know what happened to you? You became the slave to who you owed the money to until the money was worked off. An awkward silence descends over the room as people are calculating how many years of servitude that they might have to serve to MasterCard or Visa to take care of that debt. No, but this is the principle. Is it not in the scriptures that this is how debts were? You didn't just write it off. That actually it had to be settled this way. And then finally, the fourth way that a Hebrew servant would become a slave or servant is if a thief had nothing with which to pay proper restitution. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but it was another way that somebody might become a slave in ancient Israel. But the ideas of man-stealing, the ideas of permanent servitude, these concepts that many people have of slavery, they simply do not apply to the practice of slavery in the Old Testament. Normally, slavery in ancient Israel was chosen, or at least mutually agreed to, Secondly, it was of limited duration. And thirdly, it was highly regulated. I mean, look at it right there in verse 2. He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. That's all there is to it. Six years. Not lifelong. Six years. So if I owed you a massive debt that I could not pay, I would have to say, okay, I can't pay my debt. I'm going to work for you, but not for the rest of my life. For six years at the most until the debt is discharged. And then I am free. This was the idea. And God had a great concern by making the first law to say, I am going to take care of the needs and make sure that these people in this condition of servitude are not treated badly. Next, chapter 22, verse 1. We're just going to pick out another law to take a look at in greater depth. Just one other law, because I think it's illustrative. Exodus chapter 22, starting at verse 1. It says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. All right, look, okay, great. God's giving some laws about what to do with slavery. You say, well, wait a minute, with this whole business of thievery and stealing, didn't God say back at the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal? Yes, of course he did. Then why does he feel that he needs to add more here? Because even though he said, do not steal in the Ten Commandments, he did not say what the penalty should be for the one who does steal. Now God details, for the sake of the judges in Israel, what they should do. And that's why verse 1 says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep. Now let me make this clear. What we're talking about here is precedent. We're talking about case law. 
In other words, it was not open season on, it wasn't open season on goats in Israel. Like you say, well, it doesn't say don't steal a goat. It just says an ox or a sheep. No, no, no. You take the principle back to this. So in laying down the precedent, certain kinds of animals like oxen, certain kind of animals like sheep, if the theft is made, what does it say? It says, verse 1, he shall restore. You know what I think is amazing about that? The Mosaic law didn't send people to jail for stealing. What did it do? It said, pay him back. Don't just pay him back, but pay him back with a penalty. You've got to make restitution, not just of what you sold, but tack on four additional oxen to the ox that you sold. Add a second sheep. The penalty could be anywhere from 500% to 200% for what was stolen from there. Now you think about that. I could just think of a poor Israelite farmer saying, somebody please steal my ox. I'd like four more. But actually, this was a very appropriate and humane way to address the problem of theft. Because actually, I think it's much better than our own system, which tends to emphasize incarceration instead of restitution. In the Old Testament law, emphasizing restitution, first of all, it made it good for the person who suffered the loss. You stole my ox, not only do I get my ox back, you get me four more. I'm, I'm pretty happy with that arrangement if I'm an Israelite farmer. But secondly, it gave a dignified way for that thief to repent and set things right. You know, sometimes we think too kind of broadly, too kind of, you know, ethereal about this idea of a debt to society. And I believe there is such a thing as a debt to society. But even more than a debt to society, you owe something to the person that you stole it from. So pay him back, put a penalty on top of it, and then you have the dignity of knowing that you've repented and set things right. I think that's a great state way. That's a positive approach to the punishment of criminals, putting back into productive restitution and compensating the victims of the theft. Now, by the way, let me say this. I think that this principle of restitution also has tremendous application to the Christian life that we live. Look, I, I, I don't say this because I, I know anything here, but I just say... You've done wrong to people, haven't you? Haven't you done wrong to them? Haven't you stolen from some people? Haven't you injured reputations by your gossip and tail-bearing? Haven't you sinned against people in other ways? What would God say to your heart about this principle of restitution? You know, sometimes we think it's enough if we just feel bad about what we've done. Okay, great. I hope you feel bad about what you've done. I hope that you pray to God and ask Him to forgive you for that sin. Get it out of the way so that it doesn't hinder fellowship between you and God. I hope that you do that. But would you consider all afresh right now how God would have you pay restitution for what you've done? And I'm not necessarily even talking about paying money, although in some cases that might be appropriate. How about this? Looking for a way anointed by God's Spirit that you would go out and set right the wrong that you've done. That you would just not consider your bad feeling inside to be restitution enough. Would God lead you? I think he would. To set it right in some way. So that was God's command. He should make full restitution. And look at it in verse 3. 
If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Well, this is a way that somebody might become a servant in ancient Israel. You steal, but you don't have the money to pay restitution? Fine, you're going to be that person's servant for six months or a year, up to six years. But then finally, look at this in verse 2. This is also something very sophisticated in the law system of ancient Israel. It says, if the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. What God is doing by laying out these principles is he's saying to ancient Israel, you have the right to protect your home. But you don't have the right to do anything at all times to protect your home. And there's divisions made. There's some circumstances in which more force is appropriate. There's other circumstances in which less force is appropriate. And God left it up to the judges of Israel to decide. But really, it's a wonderful principle. Yes, you have the right to protect your property. No, you don't have the right to do anything to protect your property. It has to be appropriate to the threat and to the circumstances. All right, well, that's these two laws that I just sort of gave as example in the beginning of chapter 21 about the rights of slaves, in the beginning of chapter 22 about making restitution after a theft and all of that. Now let's go to the end of chapter 23 and take a look at a change. Because chapter 21 is all about these laws for different circumstances. Chapter 22 is all about these laws for different circumstances. And the first 19 verses of chapter 23 are all about these laws in different circumstances. But at verse 20 of chapter 23, it changes. At verse 20 of chapter 3, God is no longer laying out laws. Now he's promising something about his presence. By the way, I think this is very important, sort of as a balance, sort of as an illustration for us. That yes, do we need to hear God's law spoken in our heart? Absolutely we do. You need to hear about God's law, and I need to hear about God's law. I don't doubt that for a moment. We need God's law. We need to know His moral demand. We need it for us as a guardrail for our society. We need it as a mirror for our own life so that we can see Jesus, or know that we need Jesus, I should say. And then finally, we need it as a guidebook for our daily walk so that we know something of the heart and the principles of what pleases God. Yes, we need all this, but, but... You know what you need as well? You need the presence of Jesus Christ in your life. Have you known some followers of God that they were all about law? Oh, they had the law down on every step. Law this, law that. But they forgot about the presence. And that's what we get to right here. Exodus chapter 23, 23, verse 20. It says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. God promised that he would send a supernatural individual there to accompany Israel along the way. He was saying to them, you're not alone. I'm going to send a unique presence, a unique angel, he says. I want you to consider this. Where God sends, says, I send an angel before you. This unique angel commanded obedience from Israel and he had the right of judgment over them. Most of all, you could say this, and it's at the end of verse 21. My name is in him. Now, who is this angel? Did you know we only know a few angels by name in the Bible? 
During first service, I said we know the angel Michael by name, and we know the name Gabriel by name. And at the end of first service, I said, well, that's it. That's all we have is those two angels. And then somebody else brought up very helpfully. He said, no, 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 we know another angel by name, the angel Lucifer, who was a fallen angel, but, you know, that's a name nonetheless. But nevertheless, who is it that God promised he would send with Israel? Well, this is what you need to understand, first of all. Both in the ancient Hebrew and in the ancient Greek, that word angel most literally means messenger. And sometimes messengers are not angelic beings. There are some cases in the Old Testament where this divine messenger was actually God himself. And when God himself appears in such a form in the Old Testament, we know that it's a preview of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus himself appearing for us on the pages of the Old Testament before his incarnation in Bethlehem. And that's why it says, verse 21, my name is in him. Did you know that the holy name of Yahweh is in the name of Jesus? It is. Because in Hebrew, you would say the name of Jesus, Yahshua. Yah, short for Yahweh, and Shua, meaning salvation. The name Jesus, Yahshua, means Jehovah is salvation. And that's God's great words to us. His name is in Jesus. Listen, here's the point of it. Jesus was with Israel in all their wilderness experience. He was there. I believe he was there in a demonstrated way, in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. I believe that he was there in the wa- rock that gave them water. He was there in his presence all throughout Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. And he promised this, verse 20, and he'll bring you into the place which I have prepared. Jesus was present with ancient Israel and promised to bring them into the prepared place. Do you realize that Jesus gives you the same promise? Oh, I'm speaking to you all this morning as if you are born again. I'm speaking to you all if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, and maybe there's some here this morning you haven't. You've never made that step to repent and believe, but I'm going to speak to you as if you have already, and just sort of in the generic way say that God speaks to all of us. He speaks to us very clearly and very strongly, and he says that Jesus is with us and that he is going to lead us into a prepared place. You know, Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And that's what he's done. He's prepared that place for you and I. It's a place for us in heaven. And Jesus is with us through all of our wanderings here on this earth. But even better than that, he's gone ahead of us to prepare a place that he will guide us into. Now, verse 22, we can continue on. It says, but if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I'll cut them off. Yes, I'm going to lead you into this land of promise that I have promised you. You must obey him. And most importantly, verse 23, my angel will go before you. Friends, isn't it wonderful that God did not lead them out of the wilderness 
He did not lead them out of Egypt simply to leave them in that place, but rather to bring them into a land of promise. And we start reading about this and we get all excited. Yes, it's wonderful. Lord, isn't it great? You're going to lead us into this land of promise. I believe that God has that promise for you in this life. I think in an ultimate sense, it's fulfilled for us in heaven. But don't you believe that God has a place prepared for you in this life where he wants you to dwell? Hold on to that thought. I'll explain it a little bit more by analogy. Let's read it. Verse 24. He says, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works. But you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. And I'll take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. In a way that's very appropriate for the old covenant, God said to Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you. Now I'm happy to say that under the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ, we have a different ground of blessing. Our ground of blessing under the new covenant is not obeying and and earning. No, our basis of blessing under the new covenant is believing and receiving. Nevertheless, we say there is always an inherent blessing to those who obey. There's always something written into God's good law for us where we find blessing when we obey him. So now take a look here, starting at verse 27. God says, I will send my fear before you and I will cause confusion among all people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn back to uh, turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them from out before you until you have increased and inherit and will inherit the land. God said, listen, I'll bless you. I'll bring you into the promised land. I'll go before you. I'll fight on your behalf. But then he says something in verse 30 that just kind of floors me a little bit. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but sometimes it depresses me what he says in verse 30. At the very least, it frustrates me sometimes. Did you notice this in verse 30? He says this, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased. God promised to drive Israel's enemies out from Canaan, but he would not drive them out all at once, even though it was in his power to do so. Instead, God wanted to do it little by little. Israel might have wanted to have it all easy and all cleared out ahead of them. But God said, no, it's not best for the land. It's not the best for you. I'm going to do my work in you little by little. Now, as I said, sometimes that's very frustrating to me because I want God's work in me to be done all at once or at the very least in big steps. You know how it is. You're that kind of person, aren't you? You can never walk up a flight of stairs just taking one step at a time. You're always doing two or more, whatever you can do. You're always in a hurry. Big steps whenever possible. You say, yes, God, let's do it fast. Let's change it. And so often God says, no, I'm going to do my work in you. I'm going to bring you into the land that I intend for you to possess. But it's going to happen little by little. 
Oh, I know, I know. That's a word from the Holy Spirit for some hearts here today. You've been upset with God. You've been wondering why his work isn't faster. Now, let me say, I praise God for those seasons of a rapid work. I praise God for those times when it seems like, wow, it's all happening so fast and so glorious. Those are good seasons. And I'd rather have more of them rather than less of them. But I never want to despise God's work in my life when it happens little by little. Think about it. Next Sunday, we're all going to get together here again, and we're going to start going through Exodus chapter 24. And it's a great chapter. What's going to happen in your life between now and then? For some of you, it's going to be some dramatic growth. There's going to be something comes up in your life, whether it's expected or unexpected, and it's going to be a dramatic, big opportunity for a step of growth, and praise God for it. That's going to be some of you. Others of you? At the very least, shouldn't you see something happen in your life little by little? A little greater giving of your heart and faith to God. A little greater of a focus upon Jesus Christ. A little greater of a giving of yourself. A little greater of a death to yourself. A little greater of the love and the hope and the faith that Jesus Christ wants to work in your life. Do not despise that little by little work. It's how God does most of his growing. That's how he works in our life. Well, let's wrap it up here, starting at verse 31. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia and to the desert to the river, for I'll deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. God says, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. I'm going to bring you into this land. Don't serve their gods. But if you noticed in verse 31, he set the boundaries of their promised land. Now, if you look at the boundaries that God depicted, and up on the slide we have up on the the screen, it, it shows in yellow sort of this big, broad area. Let me tell you something. That was a much greater portion of land than Israel usually possessed. Some people think that they never possessed the full extent of the land. Other people believe that they did for a brief time under the reigns of King David and King Solomon. So I don't know if you would say they never possessed their full possession or they rarely possessed their full possession. But either way, you get the point. God had promised so much more to Israel than they ever actually possessed. And I wonder if that's not you in your life with God. He's promised so much to you. How much do you possess by faith? Well, here's what you could say. Lord, little by little, I want to take the land for your glory. Just this next week, can you not possess more of his promises? Can you not trust him a little bit more? Can you not just grow in his love, in his grace, and his goodness? If not in those dramatic steps that he gives us from time to time, if nothing else, little by little, come into every possession of what God has for you. That's my prayer for you and, frankly, for myself. So let's pray it right now. Father, that's what we ask. We ask that with the work of Jesus in us and through us, that you would bring us into a full possession of what you have for us, or at least to the fullest extent possible. We're not expecting perfection on this side of eternity, but, Lord, what we are, what we are expecting 
is that little by little you would keep us growing and growing into the full possession of what you've given us in Jesus. I pray that you give us a heart that's not satisfied with a partial possession to live in some small corner of the promise that you give to us. But rather, Lord, that has an utter devotion to live it out to the fullness, to live in big steps, to live in the little steps, to follow you in your presence in our life day by day, week by week, as year passes into year. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word among us this morning. Now, help us once again to turn our hearts and worship to you and to receive the praise that we offer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.